Fuckers. Welcome to No Prize from God, Episode 2. I'm Ryan J. Downey. No Prize from God is a series of conversations about belief, unbelief, and everything in between, with creative people who are provoking and inspiring in different mediums all around the world. My guest today is Jesse Leach, vocalist for the band Killswitch Engage. Killswitch Engage were one of the defining bands of the so-called new wave of American heavy metal. This is a group of bands that includes Lamb of God, Avenged Sevenfold, As I Lay Dying, bands who partly inspired by the new wave of Swedish death metal defined by At The Gates, In Flames, and others, took American hardcore, metalcore, and traditional metal music and created something that, as Kerrang! magazine put it at the time, killed the new metal of chart-topping bands of the day like Limp Bizkit, dead. Jesse Leach was the vocalist for Killswitch Engage on their self-titled debut album released on the 4th of July in the year 2000, as well as their breakthrough and high-minded creative achievement, Alive or Just Breathing, a definitive and classic album in the new wave of American metalcore. When the record was reissued as a deluxe edition in 2005, I had the opportunity of writing the liner notes for Alive or Just Breathing, interviewing people who were involved in both writing and recording and performing on the album, dealing with the band on the label side, and others as well. On the eve of Killswitch Engage's breakthrough success on the OzFest stage, on movie soundtracks, and going on to sell gold records, Jesse, in a moment of personal turmoil and struggle, chose to exit the band, who continued on without him for a few records, until his return with 2013's Disarm the Descent. All During his time away from Killswitch Engage, Jesse fronted the band Seamless and The Empire Shall Fall, exploring bluesier, ever more introspective music that never strayed too far from his heavy roots. Jesse was a guy who was inspired early on by punk and hardcore music, and to this day will rep rocksteady, two-tone, and ska bands on his t-shirts on stage, playing at huge metal festivals all around the world, co-headlining with bands like Anthrax, and touring as a headliner in their own right. Jesse's initial reunion with Killswitch Engage songwriter, producer, engineer, mixer, and mastermind Adam D first began in the project Times of Grace.
His long-awaited reunion with the band would disarm the Descent, and last year's even more impressive Incarnate album brought the full realization of everything Killswitch Engage represents, from the heavy side to the melodic side to the unending, constantly evolving spiritual quest of Mr. Jesse Leach, who brings new definition to the idea of wearing your heart on your sleeve. This is someone who, in a genre that sometimes is defined by artifice and fantastical imagery, has always looked inward to the larger mystery of the existential, the esoteric, the spiritual. Jesse has never preached, he's never proselytized, but he's also never shied away from revealing his struggles with the Christian faith as a believer himself, as someone who seeks towards a higher aim and a higher goal, someone committed to justice and progressive values, to old school hardcore ideas like independence, self-reliance, and unity. When I started this podcast, Jesse Leach was one of the first people I thought of to invite as a guest. I was very happy when he accepted my invitation. Jesse and I have had a number of in-depth conversations over the years, many of them off the record, maybe many of them sort of outside of the public eye and ear. So I was very excited to take this opportunity to bring that kind of conversation that Jesse and I will end up naturally having when we get a chance to speak to a larger audience and for people to trip out and explore and learn more about this artist whose music has impacted people all around the world and whose continued search for truth and meaning in a world that often seems full of lies and difficult to define one's place in the order of things is always inspiring. So here it is, my conversation with Jesse Leach of Killswitch Engage. This is No Prize from God. sort of uh, always been a, a searching, wandering guy looking for the, the true meaning of God after he found Jesus in the 1970s. 
So we did a lot of traveling and my mother was predominantly the supportive wife slash did uh, nursing third shift. So she would be, you know, when we were really young, she would be sleeping during the day and my brother and I would be left to our, you know, ourselves living in Florida, Missouri, uh, you know, inner city, Philadelphia, out on a farm in Wisconsin. We moved around a lot because my dad was constantly in search of something. So it was an interesting childhood. My parents were great. They did the best they could to raise us. But I definitely think that my brother and I, and then later on my sister, uh, were raised with a certain mindset and a certain indoctrination, you know, into the Christian faith, which was really good. And also, um, I believe, a little bit uh, inhibiting growth as well. That sort of um, constant relocation, was that, in, in terms of your father's search, was that professionally motivated that he was taking different jobs in different places or was that a means to an end and what were were there religious communities or things like that that were bringing you to these different places yeah mostly religious but um you know had to make ends meet as well so while he's going and studying a lot of this was for education as well uh, going to seminary uh studying under people sort of taking on jobs to work alongside another minister to see how it's done type thing but while he was doing that, he was working as well, you know, whatever job he could, a jack of all trades, if you will, from carpentry to, you know, working at a uh, chemical factory to loading trucks to being sort of a handyman around the neighborhood where we lived. Parents were constantly moving and working and searching. So it created an environment for my brother and I where we had access to all different kinds of people. We met all different kinds of people, but a lot of it was in the context of a religious community. So it was an interesting way to see the world and to travel and to move about, but sort of under the umbrella of the Christian community. You know, without asking you to speak too much on his behalf, what do you know about his sort of uh, conversion moment in the 70s? Was that part of the whole... When I think about the 70s and I think about born-again Christianity, there was also that whole strand of the Jesus freak movement, I think they called it, or like the, oh, yeah. the sort of hippie, you know, the guys who started the Cornerstone Festival and like that whole, <laughs> that whole thing. Yeah. My father, um, from a young age, uh, going from being sort of a greaser gangster, you know, out in the streets to getting into, uh, fashion and drugs and all that stuff in the sixties, eventually leading him to the hippie movement. And, you know, a healthy dose of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, <laughs> yes. you know, uh, the, the folky stuff, the Woodstock, the Hendrix. He was into all that, bought himself a Harley Davidson, became a biker, you know, because this was all a search for him. He was trying to figure his life out between his, you know, relationship with his uh, alcoholic father, basically trying to find a heavenly father figure, if you will, I guess would be if I could go deep with it, I think. And for him, the ultimate was Buddhism when he started to learn about Buddhism when he was a biker. And he wanted that peace that he felt that monks could give him. So he actually thumbed his way from Rhode Island to California. Wow. And from California was going to try to make money somehow to get to Tibet. That was wow. his big plan. But along the way in California, he met a guy who uh, told him about Jesus. And from that point on, he became you know, a hippie, Jesus-loving guy. And from there, he drove back home. And had to tell his family about Jesus. So that's where he met my mother. So it's been a quest since day one for this man. 
when do I get to write the memoirs with your father? <laughs> <laughs> I wish he actually started a, a book a while ago and, and never quite finished it. Uh, now he's a professor, a full-time professor. He's always had his uh, plate full. I mean, the guy has two master's degrees and a PhD in theology. Wow. So he's a very learned person. He's, I've never seen him stop. He's just nonstop. So at one point he did start a memoir. And I'm not sure how far he got in it, but the man has stories. I still learn new stuff about him to this day when I spend time with him. He sounds absolutely fascinating. And, and, I, and I'm sure as we'll delve into, there, you know, there's complications with that, that, which you've already hinted at. You know, when I think about that time in American culture and sort of those extremities of philosophical thought that were being explored, you know, you have everything within that, that hippie culture, everything surrounding it, whether it's, uh, you know, the Black Panther Party and the whole, you know, liberation theology as that was developing and a lot of like Latin American priests and, and you know, the Krishna consciousness movement was around that time, you know, way before its association with hardcore punk and Rastafarianism, you know, like all these very interesting, complex things. And yeah, in a lot of situations, a lot of people, uh, you know, that sort of led them to Christianity, but a different sort of, through a different prism than the traditional kind of puritanical Christianity that, you know, especially what we know now is like the evangelicals or whatever. Yeah, which which is predominantly an American Christianity. You know, yes. over in, in Europe and East, they have more of a... Um, a mysticism involved with their beliefs. It's a totally, so Americans are kind of the ones who've turned it into almost a, a cult or, you know, a terrorist movement <laughs> with some yeah. branches. And I chuckle, but it's true. I don't think people recognize, you know, we're so preoccupied with Muslims uh, in America for whatever reason, because they're penned to be a certain way. But, you know, you could easily put some Christian groups in that same category. For sure. And, and not to jump too far ahead, but something I'd love to discuss with you is even this whole mentality in much of the church in America that whether or not someone curses or, you know, the rise of female bloggers who might not have the right, you know, seminary training to be <sighs> saying these crazy things. You know, that those are the kind of quote unquote issues that evangelicals are focused on. You know, white evangelicals who predominantly voted for Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> Where, you know, character matters and morality matters. And, and then it's just sort of like, oh, well, whatever it takes. Which to... behind the scenes, those people are uh, severely hypocritical. And in some cases, uh, you talk about a life of sin. There's a lot going on that there's never discussed. And they point the fingers so hard at other people. But if you truly believe in what your Bible says, you should be pointing that finger right back at yourself and being humble. It's a total, absolute contradiction of what they say they believe in. You know, and talking about the 60s and 70s, you, did your dad ever listen to Seals and Croft? Uh, that doesn't sound familiar to me, maybe, but I wasn't exposed to it. They're the guys who did Summer Breeze. I just kind of think about them. In that. <laughs> That's awesome. I know that song, yeah. Yeah, I just kind of think about them from that era because they were, uh, I didn't learn this until way later in life, but they were actually members of the Baha'i faith. And oh, no kidding. Informed some of their music and whatnot. Well, there was always Christian music going on in my, my house. There was a record label called Maranatha Current. And to this day, I can still 
sing those songs. They've just been so ingrained in me. It's a lot of that early 70s flower Jesus stuff. I know a lot of it. Man, that juxtaposition between, say, inner city Philadelphia, you know, growing up to rural Wisconsin, mm. what do you think are some of the more, what are some things that you think helped shape you from living in these different places? In Philadelphia, and you mentioned the Black Panthers and you mentioned Rastafarianism, I was exposed to two of those things because where we lived in Germantown, uh, the section of uh, Philadelphia in the 1980s, uh, there was an active Black Panther chapter there, and there was also, in our neighborhood, we lived next to a Rastafarian woman. Mm. I could see her. She would go out into her backyard naked and perform rituals, or I'm not sure if she was into voodoo or what she was in, but I vividly remember watching her prance around her backyard, her dreadlocks going everywhere, chanting from a young age, being totally fascinated by that, you know, and of course thinking it was evil because of my indoctrination, but still being sort of fascinated by like, what is this other thing going on, this other practice? And also just being a minority, we were the only white family in the entire area. So we were exposed to a different type of Christianity, more of the Baptist, they call it the happy clappy stuff. Um, some Christians refer to it as that, you know, just singing and dancing and all that stuff, the Pentecost, early Pentecostal stuff. Uh, so Philly was Probably my first memories, you know, I lived in Florida and Missouri prior to that, but my memories kind of begin with Philadelphia living in a really bad part of town, but also having a pretty tight-knit community there um, and Bible studies that we would have to attend that my parents would host. See, inner city Philadelphia in the 80s, did you have any encounters or awareness of the MOVE organization? Elaborate on that. What is what is the MOVE organization? MOVE were um, these very progressive, spiritual, predominantly black liberation movement although they had they had people of, of uh, other people of color and even i think some white people involved um but it was founded by a guy who called himself john africa and they were vegans and did like composting and homeschooling yeah this this sounds very familiar actually i want to go as far as to say that my brother and i were recruited and i'm not sure if it was the same there was a political movement going on there where they stole a nuclear warhead or a warhead of a missile and they had this magazine if it's the same uh, group, I'm not sure, but they were a radical Christian group. And my brother and I were po uh, meant to pose in front of this warhead they had stolen. Wow. So that particular radical group, I'm, I have to look it up or ask my parents if it was them. They were in our neighborhood. And I remember the vegan food and I remember prayer groups across the street. So we were intermingling with a radical group there, but my parents weren't a part of it, but they were our neighbors. That might have been moved. They were rather infamously bombed by the Philadelphia police. And okay, I mean, like, then, then that's who it is. That's exactly who it is then, because I yeah. remember that. The fire from the attack incinerated six adults and five children and destroyed 65 homes. Despite two grand jury investigations and a commission finding the top officials were grossly negligent, no one from city government was criminally charged. They blew up their house and, you know, murdered women, children. Yeah. So th those were in our, I was in our neighborhood. We okay. knew those people. And then you're probably familiar with, with Mumia Abu-Jamal. Oh, yeah. Yep. First on the Kelly File tonight, remember Mumia Abu-Jamal? He is the convicted cop killer who was defended on his death sentence by a guy President Obama nominated for a top DOJ position. 
while Republicans and Democrats ultimately united to kill that nomination. But now it seems a California labor union is upset that a school district out west might not want to teach children that Abu Jamal is some kind of hero. You see, this man's case has long been a cause celeb for many on the left who believe he was railroaded because of his race. My next guest believes that Abu Jamal is not only innocent, but is similar to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. She wants this lesson taught to children. Joanna Fernandez is a history professor and one of the coordinators for the campaign to bring Mumia home. Uh, Ma'am, it's good to see you tonight. And so he, he, was, he was convicted. His guilt was upheld repeatedly, even though his death sentence was overturned. So the courts gave him a fair shot. Why on earth would you want to see children taught that this man is in any way like Dr. Martin Luther King? Yeah, he was associated with MOVE and was reporting on, uh, on them a lot. And, you know, and a lot of people believe part of his incarceration was, you know, a frame up that had to do with residual police violence and, and the MOVE organization. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. And, and there was violence in our neighborhood uh, pretty frequently. We were fairly sheltered from it. We had a big iron fence around the yard and we weren't allowed out of the yard, excuse me, without uh, supervision. And our supervision was a pimp named Moses, ironically enough, who lived <laughs> next door to us. And his job was to protect my family and make sure that my mom got to the train. So we had a pimp named Moses with a sawed-off shotgun in his trench coat. I had no idea, obviously, he was a pimp or he had a gun on him. But we had protection because we needed it in that neighborhood. And you had you had Moses leading you out of your <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. How ironic is that? Yeah, they <laughs> called my dad the preacher. He was very well respected by a lot of people in that community, and he would also be the handyman if you had problems in your house. He was a professional carpenter, so he would go and do jobs. So he was the white preacher man that helped people out. And my parents constantly, uh, you know, making their face shown in the community and and lending a helping hand to people. One of the things that I've always respected and admired about you, seeing you play with Killswitch at a festival like Heavy Montreal or going out on tour with Anthrax, you're always rocking, you know, like a specials t-shirt or a Bad Brains patch or, you know, really kind of representing that element of the culture that's often underrepresented in, in metal and particularly the heavier side. Oh, yeah. It is my culture. You know, that's where I come from and it's the stuff I still listen to. You know, metal has become my job and I love it and there's some metal I really dig, but that wasn't my first love. You know, I got into metal later on. My first love was, was hardcore and it's still, you know, when you meet other people from the hardcore scene or the punk scene, there's a certain ethos, there's a certain conversation that just happens. Yeah. And the moment I can see somebody with, you know, whatever, an integrity shirt or a burn or youth of today or inside out, or I automatically know they're part of my tribe. You know, if, if they're of a certain age group, it's automatic. And I love that about our culture. So, yeah, I rep, I rep that with pride. So what was your, you know, obviously you had a lot of Christian music around the house. You know, when did music first start to feel like it was yours? You know what I mean? Because we all have that, that evolution from our parents' music to something that we discovered and became. Yeah, I think it was probably first, you know, the radio in the 80s, 80s pop. You know, I always loved that stuff. Phil Collins, I think, was one of my first favorite yeah. things as a young kid. The first time I was sort of hit between the eyes and, and realized that there was a lot more to to music than just, you know, something that makes you dance or move your feet or something you put on when you're doing chores around the house was probably Public Enemy. 
their lyrics, you know, Chuck D's vocal presence, it just hit me in the face. And I want to say it was probably um, uh, Welcome to the Terror Dome was the first record that I bought. It was like, it was all about the message. Refuse to lose. Here's your ticket. Here's the drama get wicked. The clue to you to push the back the black attack. So I sack and tap and slap the Mac. Now I'm ready to mic it. That was the gateway, I think, for me into getting into Anthrax as well, which I didn't really know who they were when I was that young. But that thrash sound, that thrash crossover music led me back into hardcore. And I think the first band that really struck me was Minor Threat. I heard them when I was about 13, 14 years old. And that was it for me. I I worshipped Ian McKay. I wanted to be him. promise <laughs> you know you talk about discovering anthrax via public enemy i actually discovered public enemy via anthrax yeah um, totally. and this was you know prior to of course the you know famous bring the noise that they did together that was on mtv and whatnot this was earlier for me i grew up really into i had an older brother who turned me on to a lot of punk and new wave as a very young kid so i was I was in elementary school listening to the Sex Pistols and the Cure and Black Flag and. Oh, you're a cool kid, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and and this was and this was in uh, the South Side of Indianapolis in the '80s, so. Wow. <laughs> it was actually the opposite of cool. It's cool now, <laughs> um, in retrospect. Yeah, yeah, uh, totally. You were the freak. You were the outcast. That's yeah. what we all were. Absolutely, one hundred percent. And and yeah, and I went headfirst into thrash metal music uh, when a friend of mine gave me a copy of Megadeth Peace Cells on cassette. The more I learned about thrash, the more I would see photos of Scott Ian in Public Enemy shirts. Yeah, which is so awesome. And, uh, you know, that's another reason why I like wearing those shirts. So yes. they get noticed and people are like, who is Absolutely. this band? Yeah, I, I discovered the Dead Kennedys because David Ellison from Megadeth had a Dead Kennedys sticker on his base. Yeah, you know, that's and I went, awesome. what is that? You know, and you see James Hetfield and Sam Hain t-shirts and you go, what is Sam Hain? And there was a kid who rode my bus to school who was a hip hop kid and he wore public enemy shirts. And so one day I just, you know, and it's so funny because I was, you know, very introverted and didn't have very many friends. But I saw this kid had his headphones on. He was wearing his public enemy shirt. And so I just had, I wasn't sure if it was like a metal band, struck up a conversation with him and he was psyched that I was talking to him. He ended up making me a tape. Oh, yes, the mixtape. Yes, yeah. and I Love made it. It, and I made him a mixtape with Anthrax and what you know, Chromags, dude. When I put in that Public Enemy and I heard that they sampled Slayer, right? <laughs> it's just like, yeah. I mean, it just it was a perfect storm. They were you know talking about ideas and issues and things that that I hadn't been exposed to, and that led me into you know Boogie Down Productions and X Clan yeah. and uh even like professor griff's first solo album like a, a bunch of stuff like that that was happening at that time that you know was very very much expanding your mind i, I would imagine for you as a you know son of a preacher man so to speak hearing public enemy and hearing chuck d say farrakhan's a prophet who i think you ought to listen to you know i mean what did that kind of do to your mind 
<laughs> well, you know, because of that, that kind of first started me getting into f- recognizing other religions and still sort of shunning it, you know, because I was, again, very indoctrinated. But the curiosity was peaked because I was getting heavily into hip hop as well as hardcore. And, you know, at that time in music, being a Muslim was a fairly trendy thing in hip hop. Yeah. You had a lot of people talking about it from, you know, Gangstar to, like you mentioned, X-Clan, which they were kind of more on the extreme side of things. But mm-hmm. by the way, freedom or death, you shall all be moved. This is protected by the red, the black, and the green with the key I was into all that, and having been raised in an African-American community, I could relate to that, and they raised issues of not just, you know, religion with, you know, the Muslim belief system, but also black rights and black suppression, and being exposed to that at a young age and seeing the inequality that was going on at a very young age, that really sort of moved me and uh, angered me at a very young age too, which led me further into hardcore music when I heard the angry music. But getting back to, to the point about Muslim and religion, I think for me it just opened a door of curiosity more than anything mm. uh, and being wanting to know what that was about. While I was going through that, though, coincidentally, my father co-wrote a book with a couple other preachers, which is... A Dictionary of Religions, Sex, and Occults. And it's legit a book where it's a guidebook where you can look up that particular thing and it'll tell you what it is and give you information on it. So I started to devour that book uh, at a young age too, in curiosity of of Buddhism as well. What was the context with that book? Because I I mean, I encountered things like that as a kid that were very... um you know, here's why you should be scared of each of these things. And then, you know, and then there, and then there's uh and then there's the other perspective, which is like, here's just information about it. Yeah. This one was more information, but I definitely had books in my house that my father um, would teach on because he also used to do a youth group as well. That was during the time when all the fundamentalist Christians were going after rock and roll. Mm. So, you know, whether it was artwork or messages and people who claim that ACDC was of the devil and journey and like ridiculous. Yeah. Absolutely Anti- ridiculous stuff. But that was in my house. Devil's child. Right. ACDC, yeah. So um, funny side story on that. My brother snuck an Iron Maiden number of the Beast cassette tape into our house uh-huh. and, and my father found it. And we had to get sat down for a lecture about uh, the devil's music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And little did we know that a few years later it would be, you know, Nico McBrain playing, uh, you know, a born-again Christian up there playing drums to that song going, hey, this is a story about the Bible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, there's no wherewithal. There's no... Yeah, uh, we didn't know. Yeah, and also my dad was sort of an, a, a feared authority figure when we were younger. Sure. So we didn't, we didn't question Of course. Him, no. no, of course, of course. I remember reading something as a teenager about Iron Maiden in particular that I still... I wish I knew who said this because I'd love to give this person credit. I read it, I think, in a metal magazine somewhere. But this line that said, you know, Iron Maiden is more likely to send kids running to the library than to the devil. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, you know, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, Flight of Icarus, like, you know, Alexander the Great. Like that, yeah, they, I mean, they're singing about like... Ancient Educational, historically education metal. (laughs) Trooper, aces high, run to the hills. I mean, yeah, it was literally like world history. I know. And then like you you can get to see him live and then, you know, just 
I don't know them personally, but every account of, that I've heard is they're just the nicest people, yeah. which is, it's just hysterical. You know, that fear, that fear mongering in the 80s of rock music and, you know, Satan worship and all that other nonsense. It's wild. And I mean, and they would equate, what was that? Was it the Dirty Dozen or there, there was the Filthy Five or something? They had this like list of records that were supposed to be the worst. And I want to say like, you know, next to Wasp, there was like Bruce Springsteen, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> Prince, you know, it was just sort of oh. like... And it's funny because we we think about, uh, you know, particularly in 2017, you know, Al Gore is this sort of um, liberal progressive icon, but it was his wife that was leading the charge in the 80s. She was the she was the face of the PMRC that was, um, you know. Uh, So it's not uh, really a uh, a wild leap of the imagination to uh, uh, to jump to the conclusion that that's about something other than uh, surgery or hospitals, uh, neither of which are mentioned in the song. No, it's not a wild jump, and I think uh, I, what I said at one part was that songs allow a person to put their own imagination, experiences, and dreams into the lyrics. Uh, people can interpret it many ways. Uh, Ms. Gore was looking for sadomasochism and bondage, and she found it. Someone looking for surgical references would have found it as well. Yeah. <laughs> at a time when we had a president who wouldn't say the word AIDS, as millions of people were dying from this plague oh, and epidemic... Lovers. You know, the Christian thing to do was to be worried about, you know, what Blackie Lawless was wearing on stage. Yeah. And nowadays it's with the, you know, whether or not gay people should be married is a hot button issue. It's just absolutely asinine. When you look at what issues we're truly facing in this world and what the, you know, the people who are in the spotlight, the Christians who are in the spotlight are choosing to focus on. It's just so disappointing and something that I've just distanced myself from further and further as I get older and and get more educated and travel the world more and meet more people. Like The human element of organized religion is what destroys, I believe, any semblance of what a God would be. You know, it's just such a contradiction. It's just, I mean, we chuckle about all that stuff, but that's real stuff. And that stuff's still going on in different ways. It just, they've gotten smarter with masking it. And it's not just Christians. It's, uh, you know, religion in general, any means that we're using to control people, there's automatically fear there. You got to fear something. Mm -hmm. And I'm just at that point in my life where I, I just don't buy it anymore. I don't think that this supreme being would want us to be this subservient you know, and, and not liberate us. And, you know, if God is truly love, like a lot of religions claim, you know, all this segregation, all this separation and judgment we're doing is a total antithesis of what love is. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, from a couple of years ago, which was no, very controversial because this was a megachurch pastor who dared to even question the doctrine of hell and whether or not hell is a literal place. And who's going there and who isn't. He had like uh, an art show or something at his church. And someone had put up a picture that was inspired by a quote from Gandhi. And then someone else had left a post-it note on the picture that said like, too bad Gandhi's burning in hell. And it just Mm. made this pastor step back and go like, is Gandhi burning in hell? (laughs) You know, and then just this whole hell. How do you know that? Yeah. And and then this whole idea of, um, you know, if, if we think of, a loving creator, a benevolent creator, an intelligent designer, you know, as some sort of parental figure, like you said, a heavenly father figure. As a parent myself, what sort of parent, what crime would warrant barbecuing your child for all eternity? For all (laughs) eternity. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, a God of forgiveness, and you're going to burn for an eternity. 
I, yeah, I just, for me, I, I've just sort of let go of a lot of things I used to cling to that made me feel safe. And you could sort of say that religion is that for a lot of people. It's, it's something that makes you feel safe in this crazy, dark, messed up world. And I get that, but when you're telling people where they're going to go after they die, on whose authority? You know, if you're reading a Bible and you're trusting every single word you're reading, where do those words come from? You know, a human being had to write it down at some point, inspired by God, as they say. But who do you trust when it comes to that stuff? It just, and especially when you look at, you know, for example, the Bible, King James, you had a, a political figure come in and manipulate the scriptures and take stuff out and move stuff around. And what are you actually reading, uh, you know, with our modern translation through the languages and through whatever has happened to that scripture? And I just don't, I don't believe that, that, you know, there are passages that people read out of the Bible that completely contradict another passage out of the Bible. So it's really hard for me to, to say that I could stand on scripture and say that that's exactly what I believe, especially when you're talking about hell and persecution and who's living in sin and who's not, you know, it's just, it's all over the place. It's chaos to me. It's wild to me when you think about, you know, someone like William Shakespeare and the academia, the scholarship, the volumes and volumes of, of work written about his work. Right. And all the uh, and all the adaptations of it and all the different versions and performances, movies, you know, things that are inspired. Something is far removed as Sons of Anarchy that have these like Shakespearean elements to the storyline. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then to think about how, you know, there's questions of authorship with a lot of Shakespeare's stuff. And, you know, were certain plays written by him and other people. Was he was he even the real guy that we think that he was? And to think about the lifetime you could spend studying William Shakespeare and the things that you could still be unaware of or ignorant about or uh, incorrect about. And then to extrapolate that to the world's great religions and to think that anyone could have a complete handle on how something like the Bible was assembled, what became canon, what didn't, this means, what that means. The idea that anybody has anything more than and I good a great idea that works for them or works for their community or organization or group of friends is so narrow and so dangerous, you know. And that's where we get into and something you, you something you can't question. If you question it, you're a heretic. And people got killed for questioning that. Absolutely. And and another thing that I have to throw in there too is is um, the scriptures were written in Latin in the early days, and the common man didn't speak. Latin, so you couldn't even have access to read them yourself. Right. All you got was it filtered through a priest who was part of, you know, one of the world's largest corporations, the Roman Catholic Church. So a lot of that religion, that particular sect of religion, it was all filtered down through the priests, and you didn't even have access to those scriptures. So it just even gets more diluted when, when you think about all these rules and laws and principles and things that are set up to control us that have nothing to do with the original manuscript. I'm certain of it. Well, and I think one thing that's a real shame, you know, on the other side of the coin is that there is such mystery and and history and beauty and, and depth and things to explore within a lot of religious traditions that the fundamentalists, the literalists, the legalists, you know, rightfully so, a lot of people choose to just reject the entire thing. And throw the baby out right. with the bathwater, so to speak. Right, um, right, absolutely. And 
I think that that does a great disservice to whether it's Martin Luther King, whether it's Malcolm X, whether it's, you know, there's a long list, (laughs) Joan of Arc, there's a long list of revolutionary sort of mystic, prophetic figures Mm. in, in, in history, historically speaking, who were inspired by some type of relationship to faith. And I think, you know, for a lot of the the so-called new atheism, oftentimes there's this subtle, you know, the racism of low expectations, right? Where when you bring up the liberation movements, people of color and so on, and the role that spirituality has played in that, or liberation theology, Latin American priests and so on, there's sort of this condescending, patronizing dismissal of religious viewpoints and spirituality when it comes to the role that it plays in communities of people of color. And, and yeah. there's, a, there's a real subtle kind of soft, but persistent racism to that. That's, you know, oh, well, I'm, I'm a smart white academic. I figured out that that's all dumb, but I guess that still works for them. And uh, yeah, I, it's frustrating for me um, because I know people like that. I've had conversations with people like that and they usually end, you know, with me saying, agree to disagree you know, just because I'm, I'm obviously being very outspoken about what I don't believe in these days, I would back that up by saying I do believe in the mysticism of God. I do believe that there is a higher power, a supreme being, a designer, a something else, uh, because of things that have happened to me in my life that I can't explain. And I think, you know, not just with, with atheism, but also with people who are who base everything strictly on scientific knowledge. And I think that that's a, a, a tricky, a slippery slope, rather, to stand on because science is based off of human knowledge. You're talking about, if you want to get scientific, about how much percentage of our brains we actually use. And you're basing a belief system off of the knowledge of somebody who doesn't even fully comprehend the universe because of the small capacity of brain power that we're using. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mysticism plays into that for me because I believe in science, but I also believe that there's much more than our human knowledge of this world. I mean, hell, we continue to discover things and and realize things, and there's so much more to be discovered, and maybe we won't even discover everything. And I think that is where you sort of go into the realm of what God is, or or you know, the mystery of of this world. And it's sad for me to think that there are people who don't believe in any mystery at all. Yeah. You can't explain everything. And the, and the idea that, uh, you know, I, I often point to this comparison when people say there's just, you know, there's such a remote possibility of this, that, or the other theological concept being true. My point in bringing that up is the idea that the only things that exist or that matter or that are possible are things that we currently can count and measure. I think, well, there were... Plenty of, you know, the majority of, of human history, we didn't know germs existed. We didn't know, mm. we didn't know about atoms. We didn't have any concept of radio waves or, you know, all these things that just because we couldn't perceive them or count and measure them, didn't have the tools to do that, didn't mean they weren't there, you know? And, and then, exactly. And then when it comes to evidence, I mean, you know, I have yet to visit Australia. I know you've been to Australia. I know lots of other people who've been there. I've seen a lot of evidence. I have a lot of reason to believe that it exists, even though I haven't physically been there myself. <laughs> That's not a knife. That's a knife. I think people like you and I are very frustrating to most people because people <laughs> because people like to, you know, it's always like, you know, 
Not you want a period on the end of the sentence. Yes. People always want that period, and I, I can't. I can't supply that. I, I thoroughly enjoy an open-ended discussion, uh, which is rare for me. You know, and, and getting into to, to ancient cultures, you look at you know if you really look into the Egyptian culture, there are so many fascinating elements that deal with the spiritual world, and whether it be the Book of the Dead or the penal gland or all these things that we've suppressed in in the the Western world. And, you know, even look at Eastern philosophy and Buddhism, and there's just all kinds of open-ended things. And they respected those things and saw them as the spiritual walk, the you know, the other part of the brain. And I haven't been embracing that fully. You know, I just think there's so much, even just in our own American culture, that is subdued when it comes to the way we see the world. Yeah, and to me, I feel like God is in the mystery, is in the exploration, is in the uncertainty, is in the doubt, and is in the faith, you know, and the idea that, of course, it's ridiculous to believe in a sky wizard that sits on a throne um, and, you know, <laughs> grants your wishes and listens to your thoughts. Mm. But on the other side of the coin, that doesn't mean that I'm throwing thousands of years of culture and tradition and ideas in the garbage. You know, am, am I, I'm, right. who am I to presume that I know more than a monk who's dedicated his or her life to uh, right, you know, right, following right. a particular spiritual path and, and claim some sort of uh, grasp on something? But I'm, but yeah, I'm certainty that the, 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 the older I get, the more I've experienced in life, the more people I've encountered. You know, I, I have core values, I have things that I believe in strongly, I advocate passionately for different positions about different things. But when it comes to mm. life's, biggest questions certainty is the most terrifying thing to me at this point and and the thing that i find to be the most dangerous and you know when you mentioned earlier that for a lot of people religion offers a comfort and a safety because it gives them explanations for a lot of things that are scary to contemplate i would i would say first of all i agree with that wholeheartedly and secondly i think a lot of ideological systems philosophies lifestyles a lot of things do that um, a lot of things are opiates in that sense. I would say that people who are addicted to conspiracy theories, uh, you know, and w which isn't to say, you know, do I think there's more to the story with the assassination of JFK or, you know, of course I do. But when you get into, you know, Alex Jones and Pizzagate and things like that, and these things that a lot of thinking people find laughable and you wonder, well, what makes someone susceptible to that? I think the explanation is that people like an explanation. They like, you know, if you believe in lizard people, Illuminati running the world, it gives you a simple answer for complex questions that don't necessarily have answers, you know, because now, now, now mm. you have this way to look at everything and go, oh, well, it's the, uh, you know, a white supremacist that's like, well, the Jews are controlling the media and the, the immigrants are taking all the jobs and what cool that now they have a list of bullet points with which they can view the world and explain away every inexplicable thing that comes their way. You know, is Islam is a religion, is a monolithic group of people. They hate us and they want to kill us and they, they did 9-11. Yeah, that's way simpler and easier to hang on to and go about your day than to really get into the nuances of everything that led to something like the 9-11 attacks and everything that was involved in it. You know, and, and I think that that's, I have some sympathy and some, some empathy, I should say, rather, for people that look for these easy answers like I understand that and I think what takes a lot more courage and strength and perseverance is to 
push yourself through the uncertainty and to accept. Yeah. You know, I think people have a fear of being ostracized as well. Uh, You know, you talk about trying to find answers or simple answers or, you know, believing what the news reports to you about a, a particular situation. And I find myself in the middle of both of those things. You know, I definitely look deeper into conspiracies and I've learned a lot because I've allowed my brain to go there. And I think that that's healthy. I think it's good to question. But, you know, that in itself can become almost its own religion in itself. If you're constantly questioning and everything is a conspiracy, you know, you're just as bad as the people who are saying that it isn't and that America is a great country and everything about America is totally fine. It's just the same with religion. The moment you start questioning things and become a sort of a doubter, you know, especially in the Christian community that I grew up in, you're ostracized yeah. immediately. It, it's a very taboo thing to question the authority of the church. And for me, I'm questioning everything these days. You know, as I get older, I have more questions. Than, <laughs> and I think that that's good. It helps me take what I believe in seriously. I'm not just following blindly. I'm, you know, like you said earlier, that that is part of the journey. That's part of the process is is the breaking down of, of the indoctrination and, and whether that be with, you know, nationalism or with, you know, belief in God, any certainty, any sort of standing on this one thing and saying this is 100% absolutely accurate, that's, that's dangerous thinking. And I, I, I want no part of that as I get older. You know, I've always responded to a point of view. I appreciate and enjoy a strong point of view in art. You know, whether it's a painting, whether it's a film, whether it's a book, music, whatever. It doesn't have to be my point of view, but I can appreciate and respect that there is one. You know, and I, I, I tweeted this thing out the other day. I, I saw a report about Stephen Colbert finally, you know, giving Jimmy Fallon and The Tonight Show a run for its money. And I tweeted like, hey, does this mean everyone is a progressive Catholic Lord of the Rings fanatic? No, it means that people respond to a point of view and authenticity. And Colbert is succeeding where Fallon isn't because someone who's so thirsty, who just wants to be liked who's going to do the Trump hair tussle. It's like, Hey, we're not, we're not dismissing you because you were nice to Donald Trump. We're dismissing you because we don't know who you are. We don't, you don't have like a fix, any kind of fixed Mm. ideology or any sort of authenticity or identity we can depend on. And so that's where, you know, I've always had what would to some would be a contradictory music collection because I can be inspired listening to dark throne and listening to demon hunter. Because I, I understand that sort of passion about belief. But by the same token, like I said, when it comes to the larger questions, the thing I'm most passionate about, and as much as critical thinking and, and skepticism has driven my political outlook and my relationships and so on, I find that that's the biggest driver for my faith. And where that's something that I struggled with for most of my life, I'm arriving at a place where I'm finally finding some comfort in the mystery. <laughs> In the in the mm, in the questions, great. you know, that's great, man. Um, so, I've heard through your lyrics, you know, whether it's obviously the "Alive or Just Breathing," a classic now, you know, modern metalcore definitive record. Whether it was your lyrics there, whether it was stuff you did in Seamless when you're outside of Killswitch, whether it's the Times of Grace record, and then certainly the more recent output, I feel like your own struggle with life's bigger questions and with sort of identity 
as a believer, non-believer, you know, that whole thing. I feel like we've seen that explored, that's that struggle, that process through your lyrics. Uh, would you would you say that's a, a fair assessment? And uh, what do you think have been sort of the definitive milestones in that process? If there are different songs you could point to? or Yeah, I definitely think that that's the case. Um, I think with a lot of my projects, uh, it's a very... Um, a very personal point of view that does come through and it's very honest. And I think that's probably if I could be so bold to say, that's probably why people can relate to what I write because I'm not masking it. You know, I put poetry around it to say a certain thing because I think the worst thing in the world with an artist to come out and just say something immediately. I think with my lyrics, I I've tried to keep it poetic and paint a broad enough stroke where you get the gist of what I'm saying but I'm not sort of throwing it in your face with a particular topic. Uh, Lavender's Breathing was sort of a, a spiritual, I don't want to say awakening, but sort of my testimony and where I was coming from and my view of the world and also very heavily influenced by um, being a huge reggae fan and being into Rastafarianism and sort of worshipping at the altar of bands like The Bad Brain. like you know 108 the, the krishna conscious stuff yeah coming from me sort of standing on the shoulders of, of the giants that I grew up listening to and saying, well, this is my version of it. This is how I'm going to talk about where I come from and what I think. But, you know, being 22, 23 years old, uh, I'm a completely different person these days in many ways. But that same sort of longing, that desire to understand the bigger question is there. And I think, yeah, you're correct. It's woven through. You mentioned Seamless. I mean, even um, uh, The Wanderer, for example, was a track I wrote about the concept of the devil and wrestling with what I 
thought that that might be at that time in my life. importantly you know obviously because it's where i am now the album incarnate the latest release from kill switch to me has probably some of the most thought-provoking and existential questions woven throughout there absolutely one song that comes to mind in particular is um embrace the journey upraised lyrically um you know lyrically it goes through questions and and not having the answers and looking towards the vastness of the universe and standing there in all of it and then at the end of the song i i say you know i still believe i still believe and i chant it but i'm not saying what i still believe in and i think it's just me just longing to understand the concept concept of god side of the coin on that record is a song called it falls on me which is me it's basically my love letter to god which i don't even think i've ever said out loud to anyone it's just about my doubts and about feeling like you know when i pray there's no one listening anymore uh and i sort of touch i don't feel that way these days thankfully but at that time when i wrote it you know i think a lot of people can relate to that mm -hmm. you have those moments where you're like is this even a thing are you even there you know, because I feel like, you know, you're not there.
So I think that's where I'm at these days. You know, I have my good days and my bad days, but you're right. Lyrically, I've just been trying to reach out to people and sort of be empathetic and sympathetic at the same time. And I think that that's my strength as a writer is uh, being honest with my struggles and, you know, thinking of others as well when I write. It's not all just about me, me, me. It's people that I see going through their own struggles, whether it be my friends or, you know, my, my wife or my family members. Cut Me Loose has a lot to do with my sister's struggle. So there, there are definitely songs that I could pick out, but on the whole, I think that it's my quest. You know, it, I'm trying to mirror my thoughts and where I'm at as sort of a snapshot of, of my life and all of my music. It's like the Shelter record, Quest for Certainty. <laughs> yes. <laughs> great yes. title. Oh, man, I used to go to Shelter shows. I used to love Shelter. Me too. Yeah, and I know for a fact that atheists, uh, including atheists who I am um, very you know close friends with and respect and admire, will be listening to our conversation and punching their steering wheel, going, "They're so close! They're so close to coming over! Just come on over!" You know, and <laughs> by the by the same turn, <clears throat> you know, fellow believers listening, going like, "What? what but." But what do you guys think about the Trinity? What do you guys think about Immaculate Conception? Why aren't you talking about that? You know, and, and mm. I think that frustration says more about them than us, you know, because to me, it's like, man, just take a breath and step back and be in awe of the whole mystery and complication of it. I think to, to bring it back to another song, because it just popped in my head, there's a song called Just Let Go on the most recent record. sound it to people but to me it's a joyous song it's a song about 
getting to that point where I don't have to hold on to everything. I can lose control. It's okay to like take a leap of faith to use, you know, phrasing that people of faith will understand. Mm -hmm. And that faith doesn't have to be defined by an institution. It, you know, and I think that's, ex that's exciting for me. I think I sort of turned a corner a few years back where I was like, it's okay to not know exactly what you believe. That's a liberating feeling when you're okay with yes. that. And I try to tell people, you know, the few conversations I've had with people who are devout Christians, sort of reassuring them that, look, you know, just because I don't subscribe to everything down to the, you know, the dot of, dot of the letter or the, you know, the crossing of the T's or whatever the case may be, I'm still a person of faith. I have belief in God. I just haven't narrowed it to be under the umbrella of a particular religion. And, and you know, and it, it's that idea of the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. Because even when you get into the letter of the law, as we alluded to at the beginning of this conversation, which particular set of precepts from which sect are we even talking about? <laughs> based on what historical context, based on, you know what I mean? It's like there's so much to try to really narrowly pin something down um, is kind is kind of a fool's errand. And I prefer to use broader terminology that people can understand a little bit more quickly to describe myself and my own beliefs and, and where I'm at. But even that, find myself immediately following up a couple of words with 10 sentences because it's like, look, it, we can't be so reductive. You know, it's like saying, if I were to tell somebody I'm a metalhead, yeah, I love heavy metal music and I've experienced a lot in the metal culture and I have a lot of relationships there and tons of passion and knowledge about so many subgenres within that framework. But to say, hey, I'm a metalhead to some people means a certain thing that it doesn't mean for me and also mm -hmm. dismisses, you know, I had a Britpop phase. I used to have like Liam Gallagher, hair, you know, <laughs> yes. and wear like the Canadian yeah. tuxedo everywhere. Spot on. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. like I... Uh, <laughs> I love skin. Well, I love skinhead music, culture. Though. I love I love Fred Perry's yeah. and what, you know what I mean. It's like, and yeah, and this is just music we're talking about, or whether it's film. Yeah, I love gangster movies. I love westerns. I love romantic comedies when they're done well. I love um, movies with political messages. And then we want to get into life's giant questions of meaning, and not just the scientific how, but the philosophical why. And we're going to pin that to a really specific set of rules like no way man no more yeah yeah it's a no more <laughs> good use today i think back on my childhood and, and one of the memories that sticks out was you know what is the most important commandment was a question I asked when I was younger, like, what is the core? Like, what are we, you know, I was a thinker as a kid, which, you know, I was studying Latin in a private school. Like I had a very interesting childhood and, you know, I always had a sort of a philosopher's spirit. So I always wanted to know, and I remember asking one of my teachers, what is the core belief? And the thing that she said was, love one another as yourselves and do unto others as you'd have done unto you was basically what she said summed up the whole religion. And I still carry that with me. It's like, I think you can start there. And if you start there and you think about what love is and like God is love, and then you go through whatever religion it is or whatever you believe in and keep referring back to that, you're going to be extremely frustrated 
with some of these laws and these rules that are put upon us by an institution that don't match up to essentially God being love. And I think for me, I've gone back to that basic principle and sort of started to add on to it about what I think is the concept of God. And, you know, that falls within the Christian religion. It falls within uh, certain Buddhist texts I've read. It falls within certain conversations I've had with Muslim friends of mine who are extremely frustrated in American culture these days. Um, it carries on through through every religion. You know, I'm not going to go to a temple and, and, and worship, but for me it's just I'm okay sort of building on my own knowledge, building on my own experience, especially having traveled the world. It opened my eyes to see a much broader vision uh, of one that we have here in this country and one that I have been given through my indoctrination through the Christian American Christian faith. I'm excited to, to add on to that. I'm excited to continue forward with that and have that weave itself through my music. This is uh, everything I knew it was going to be and more. So I'm crazy psyched about this conversation and it's a great... Yeah, I'm, I'm totally stimulated. I'm going to think I'm going to go write something now. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah, man. Well, thank you so much for doing this and uh, you were right at the top of the wish list and having you on early on this uh, No Prize from God podcast, I think will really help establish the tone of what I want these conversations to be. Cool, man. Well, thank you very much. That was a stimulating uh, conversation, one of the better I've had in a long time. I love it, so dude. I appreciate yeah, that. thanks, and likewise, and I would uh, I would love to have you on again at some point, so we'll have to do it more. I hope you enjoyed this episode of No Prize from God and my conversation with Jesse Leach. A couple of post-show notes before I go. That version of Summer Breeze, the Seals and Croft song that plays earlier in this episode, that's actually a cover of that song by Typo Negative, one of my favorite bands of all time. Peter Steele, genius, rest in peace. That can be found on the band's album Bloody Kisses, which was released by Roadrunner Records. Coincidentally, the record label that's released most of the Killswitch Engage catalog, as well as the Times of Grace album. To learn more about the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal, who is still in prison. I would recommend his 1995 book, Live from Death Row, as well as the website freemumia.com, which is full of information about exactly how complicated this case really is. Please dig much deeper beyond that Megyn Kelly report that I played, which is very demonstrative. You know, we talk about media bias in different directions. The media bias is dripping, even just in her tone of voice. Please explore... A little bit more of the other side of that case. Again, freemumia, M-U-M-I-A dot com, as well as his book from 1995, which I read back in the day, Live from Death Row. If it gives you any indication, when you look for Mumia online, you'll also see that people search for Leonard Peltier, the American Indian activist who many believe was also framed by the U.S. government. Asada Shakur, mother of Tupac Shakur. Angela Davis, Huey P. Newton. A lot of activists who are important to be educated about wherever you stand on the political spectrum for nothing else than to just know what's being spoken about when these things come up in conversation. From there, I would recommend learning about the MOVE organization. There's a lot of great history about that out there that's available. There's some NPR reports. Onamove.com is the actual website of the organization with a lot of information about that horrific bombing May 13th, 1985, when police literally dropped a bomb on the house where MOVE members lived in inner city Philadelphia. 
uh, tremendous loss of life and property destruction. No one was ever arrested or charged for that. To keep up on Jesse's activities and all things Killswitch Engage, tour dates, album releases, videos, and so on, of course, go to killswitchengage.com. Please follow No Prize From God on Instagram and on Twitter. No Prize From God is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network, which includes Pop Curse with Ryan J. Downey, and Speak and Destroy, a Metallica podcast about all things Metallica by Metallica fans for Metallica fans. If you look up Speak and Destroy, you'll see that we have in-depth interviews with M. Shadows from Avenged Sevenfold, author Mark Ellington, who wrote a new book about James Hetfield, Blasco, bassist for Ozzy Osbourne and longtime manager for Black Veil Brides, and I just put up a lengthy Q&A live from the Musicians Institute with the metal god Rob Halford of Judas Priest. Please check out the first episode of No Prize from God with Maddie Mullins of Memphis Mayfire. An amazing conversation about anxiety, panic disorder, depression, and of course, faith. Let me know who you'd like to hear on future episodes of No Prize from God. Please subscribe, please review, please rate it. When you leave reviews and ratings, it just increases the visibility of the podcast and allows more people to discover it. It's greatly appreciated by me. You can follow me on Twitter at Ryan Downey. And on Instagram, at SuperheroHQ. You guys have been great. And I've been Ryan J. Downing. <laughs>